What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. I'm Anna Kasparian. I'm Nando, Nando. Vila. <laughs> What's up, Nando? How are How's, you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Um, yeah. You look chipper this a, morning. Yeah, I, I'm feeling chipper. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I think part of the reason why is... You know, there's just been a lot of really great content um, put out there recently by people on the left, and I really, really enjoyed a piece that Ben Burgess published oh, yeah. in Jacobin this week, which is going to be part of my uh, commentary segment. We're going to talk a little bit about cancel culture, and I know that that discussion, um, you know, it almost seems like a cliche these days in terms of like a topic to discuss. But, you know, I think that one of the perspectives that isn't really represented is the perspective that um, I'm going to share, the perspective that Michael Brooks wanted to share. And uh, there's a lot of fear behind that because I think it's easy to kind of twist that message and make it seem as though you're an apologist for bad behavior when that's actually not the case at all. Um, But I'm really looking forward to your commentary segment today about supply chains and, and, you know, just like the history of free trade. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. It's going to be great. Um, Yeah, no, I and I think both both of our segments were in a way inspired by Michael Brooks because that I mean, this is mine is something he talked about a lot as well. So, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Michael Brooks would have turned uh, 37 uh, this past week. August 13th is his birthday. And, uh, you know, uh, that was a tough day. I mean, I I knew I was going to be a little sad that day, but I was pretty devastated from the moment I woke up. And it's because, you know, there are so many conversations that we would have with him that we would want to have about what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. And really we want to just keep, uh, carrying on with the work that he would want to put out there himself. So, uh, in the interview segment, we're going to talk to Lee Phillips and, uh, we're going to discuss how capitalism puts us in a uniquely terrible position to deal <laughs> with this pandemic. And we'll also talk to him a little bit about cancel culture because he himself has published a really great piece in Jacobin about it. So we'll discuss that. And our salt segment, I'm not sure who's saltier. Is it us or is it David Sirota? Because uh, he put out some fire (laughs) on Twitter recently. So David Sirota has a very long memory. He's a very, very long memory and bless him for it. Love it. I love him so much. He's so great. Um, but before we get to all of that, uh, I, I really wanted to share a video with all of you that I thought was hilarious. I know you thought it was funny too, Nando. But more importantly, it's the exact kind of video that I wish Michael was around for because <laughs> yeah. it has to do with Elizabeth Warren. So there was big news this past week. Uh, Kamala Harris was chosen as Biden's running mate. It, it wasn't really that shocking you know, of course, I have my issues with Kamala Harris's prosecutorial record, but I think out of the list of people he was seriously considering, and I don't think he was seriously considering Karen Bass, I'm just keeping it real, um, I think Kamala Harris makes the most sense. Um, But with that said, you know, that was a huge blow to (laughs) Michael's favorite aspirations. His favorite politician, (laughs) uh, and my favorite politician, and I think the favorite politician of everyone watching this show, Elizabeth Warren. We love Elizabeth her. Warren. <laughs> and so um, our wonderful producer, Kale Brooks, uh, sent us this video of Rachel Dolezal sending uh, her condolences to Liz Warren because she wasn't <laughs> chosen as a VP, uh, you know, as the VP. So let's uh, take a quick look at that uh, video. Hi, Liz. This is Rachel Dolezal, and I am just sending you a little shout out. 
I hope this brightens your day a little bit. I hear that you didn't get a promotion that you deserve. And I am so sorry to hear that. I know that that sucks to not have the job opportunities or promotions that you work so hard for. So um, I've experienced, of course, unemployment for five years and counting. And that has been something very hard to get through. So I have a lot of empathy for you and your situation. Um, I know it's hard to just persevere and stay strong when you don't have that affirmation that, you know, you did deserve this. You do have the talent. You do have the ability and you have everything uh, required for that promotion. <laughs> you know, First of all, my, a friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends, he saw Rachel Dolezal one time at an In-N-Out in L.A. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, that is the best celebrity sighting you could possibly have in L.A. Like just Rachel Dolezal housing a burger at In-N-Out is kind of just amazing. But everything about that video was perfect. I love just the way she goes, hey, Liz. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Like, the, the greatest injustice is the fact that Michael's not around to oh, enjoy that video, yes. right? Um, it really is an injustice. would have a 30-minute breakdown of it, you know, like, frame by frame, just analyzing it deeply. He would have said something like, you know, Rachel Dolezal is actually a hero of mine. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's just... It's a, it's a real tragedy, because that would have been... That would have been some good, some good content. Yeah, I mean, look, there's not a lot of room for joy these days, uh, especially with the news that's been going on. And I know that it uh, negatively impacted Michael uh, deeply and, you know, it impacts us as well. And so whenever there are these like little kernels of, I don't know, humor, I guess, that you yeah. can kind of inject in the news cycle. I always loved watching him do it because you're right. I mean, he would handle it with uh, his own sense of humor and I would always crack up, even if I had the worst day. In fact, when Kale sent me that video, I was not in a good mood. I, I was taking one of my like solitude hikes where I'm like, everyone <laughs> get the fuck away from me. I just want to be alone in the mountains somewhere. Kale sends me the text, sends us the text. I watched the video and I was like, I feel good now. It wasn't yeah. even the hike. It was this video. No. Yeah. No, um, it's blessed yeah. the timeline, blessed the group chat. Uh, it's just, it's good stuff. It's great stuff. It is. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, speaking of great stuff, uh, I wanted to inform all of you guys about uh, a wonderful promotion happening with uh, Verso Books. Uh, Verso Books is celebrating 50 years of radical publishing. It was founded in 1970. And Verso publishes uh, radical voices that challenge capitalism and offer far-reaching uh, proposals for social and political change. Um, so now you can actually join the Verso Book Club and every uh, new ebook, you actually get it each month, um, as well as uh, one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. And to celebrate their 50th anniversary uh, and the launch of the book club, each member tier is 50% off for the first three months. So that's a really great um, you know, promotion that they're doing to celebrate their anniversary. Please check them out. You know, These are the kinds of books that publishing houses uh, typically don't publish. And it's so important to support Verso uh, yeah. because they get the truth out there. It's like unfiltered, uncensored, um, you know, content that 
I, I think we really need to know about, read about. I know a lot of you are already educated on these issues, uh, but we want to support these authors as well. In August, uh, the books included in the book club are uh, Sensoria, Thinkers for the 21st Century by Mackenzie Wark, mm-hmm. uh, Revolutionary Feminisms, Conversations on Collective Action and Radical Thought, edited uh, by Brianna Brondar and Reef Zada. And mm. also Radical Hamilton, uh, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder, that's very topical, uh, by Christian Parenti, and a new edition of Nancy Fraser's Fortunes of Feminism. So at this momentous time for global politics, we hope all of you do join Verso in holding capitalism and imperialism to account and supporting a new wave of radical movements around the world. Nice. Very excited. I mean, the Christian Parenti book looks interesting. I, you know, maybe, maybe it'll change my mind on Hamilton. Maybe I'll actually watch the play now uh, with, a new, <laughs> with a new perspective. Thank you, Christian Parenti, for that. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, without further ado, uh, Nando, it's time for your awesome commentary segment. All righty. Here we go. Okay. Hey, does anyone remember at the beginning of the pandemic when no one could get toilet paper? Video has emerged of an alarming scene in a Sydney supermarket of two women coming to blows in an argument over the right to buy multiple packets of toilet tissue. Ah, yes. The great toilet paper shortage of 2020 was just the funniest example of a very troubling thing, namely the vulnerability of our global supply chains. Yes, the coronavirus pandemic has laid bare that the supply chains that we rely on to live are very susceptible to shocks. I mean, the United States, the richest country on earth, could not even manufacture the bare minimum in terms of PPE and masks and the like. And all of this has dealt a major blow to neoliberal globalization fundamentalists. You know who I'm talking about. It's the Thomas Friedmans of the world, the John Stossels of the world. They've been arguing for 30 years that globalization, meaning the unfettered movement of capital and so-called free trade, has been the best thing that has ever happened to the world. Next time you see the protesters screaming about the evils of free trade and globalization, remember this. A survey found that more than 80% of economists think America should eliminate all trade barriers. All of them. And that would be good. Get rid of these things. All of it. Leave free people alone to make whatever trades they want. Yeah, it's a, it's an updated argument uh, of the version, the one uh, David Ricardo made in the 19th century. You've probably heard it in your high school economics class. He famously used the example of Portuguese winemakers and British cloth ma- manufacturers. He said that the Portuguese were really good at making wine while bad at making cloth. Meanwhile, the English were amazing at making cloth, but really shitty at making wine. No argument there. Therefore, the British should not be making cloth and wine and just stick to cloth. While the Portuguese should stop making cloth and stick to wine, then the country's trade and everybody wins. And it's hard to overstate just how deeply this theory is ingrained within our ruling class. It is accepted as absolute fact by everyone from Mitt Romney to Barack Obama and everyone in between. They say that all of this free trade has led to an historic reduction in extreme poverty around the world. Notice the use of the word extreme. And they trot out intellectuals like friend of Jeffrey Epstein, Steven Pinker, to legitimize the argument for them. Steven Pinker has made millions of dollars writing books and giving lectures saying things like this. 
Well, any aspect of human well-being that you measure has shown an increase. We live longer, more of us go to school, uh, life is safer, fewer of us die in wars. And the point of the book is not just to document the, pro- the, the progress. That's the middle section of the book, and I tried to do it in 75 graphs, knowing that people will be incredulous. There's they a just lot of data in the book. They just won't believe it unless they see the graph showing poverty declining, showing deaths in war going down. Yeah, those pesky people, they just won't believe the data. I have 75 graphs. I mean, look, poverty's declining. I mean, elites just love this shit. They eat it up for the simple reason that it makes them feel good about themselves as the winners of a system that has made them richer than ever. It's a way to launder their own sense of guilt. But the reality is very different. Because a new report from Philip Alston, the outgoing United Nations special rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights, meaning the guy whose job it literally was to study this stuff, blows all of that propaganda out of the water. The Good Rapporteur said the following. Over the past decade, the UN world leaders and pundits have promoted a self-congratulatory message of impending victory over poverty. But almost all of these accounts rely on the World Bank's international poverty line, which is utterly unfit for the purpose of tracking such progress. The World Bank's official poverty line, by the way, is $1.90 a day. Austin continues, the bank line shows the number of people in extreme poverty fell from 1.9 billion in 1990 to 736 million in 2015. But the line is scandalously unambitious, and the best evidence shows it doesn't even cover the cost of food or housing in many countries. The poverty decline it purports to show is due largely to rising incomes in a single country, China. More on that in a sec. And it obscures poverty among women and often those excluded from official surveys, such as migrant workers and refugees. The result is a peric victory, an undue sense of immense satisfaction and dangerous complacency. Using more realistic measures, the extent of global poverty is vastly higher and the trends extremely discouraging. Even before the pandemic, 3.4 billion people, nearly half of the world, lived on less than $5.50 a day. That number has barely declined since 1990. And that World Bank statistic is the one most commonly used to show that, in fact, there is nothing to see here. And the system is working great. That anyone who criticizes the system is, in fact, a backward-looking anti-science, anti-data troglodyte. People, in fact, should stop complaining because everything is awesome and things are only getting better. Well, that's just not true. And as Alston points out, the poverty gains that have occurred are limited almost exclusively to one country, China. And no matter what you think about China, it is true that they have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the last few decades. What's interesting about that, however, is that they did it by ignoring the free trade evangelists. China has actually bucked the neoliberal consensus by instituting pretty strict capital controls and using things like tariffs to allow native industry to develop. Sometimes they outright ban foreign companies from operating within their borders. I used to live in China, and you couldn't use Google and Facebook even back then allowing their own high-tech industry to catch up using things like WeChat. And now that the Chinese technology is in some ways surpassing American tech with things like TikTok and 5G, you're starting to see a split amongst the American ruling class on what to do about China. Some want to be more hawkish against them. Others, like Mike Bloomberg, want to continue having access to their vast markets. It'll be interesting to see who wins that little battle. And ironically, the Chinese learned all of this from the United States. Because all of those protectionist policies are what allowed the United States' industry to develop in the 19th and early 20th centuries to become the most powerful in the world. Take a look at this graph that shows U.S. tariffs versus the rest of the industrialized world. From about 1830 to 1930, the United States had the highest 
tariff rates in the world. That's because in 1830, the economies of England and France were way more developed, and the United States needed to protect its own industry from superior French and English goods. It's no surprise that once the United States became the dominant economy in the world, it changed its tune on all this and began to force countries to lower their tariffs because free trade benefits the already rich by preventing the developing world from actually developing. But since 2008, the most vocal criticisms of free trade have come from the xenophobic right. They say that the globalists have brought immigrants here to take our jobs. And on the left, we need to reject that right-wing framing, and we need to recover some of the progress that was made by the anti-globalization movement in the 1990s before it was all destroyed by 9-11. We don't want to advocate for countries to retreat from the international community in fierce competition with each other. We need to foster a spirit of cooperation and use international organizations to check against the power of multinational corporations. We need to establish international standards for labor protections and the environment, and we need to end tax havens because there's an estimated $32 trillion tucked away in places like Bermuda and Luxembourg. I reckon we can solve a lot of our problems if we were able to get our hands on some of that money. Maybe we could even pay for Medicare for all. But we also need to realize that global supply chains are vulnerable to shocks. Some more rational countries like Finland actually stockpile things like medicine, food, and such in case that there is some sort of trade disruption. I bet they even had enough toilet paper to last through the quarantine. So, yeah. This that is something so that, that Lee Phillips talks about a lot, you know? So I'm excited to ask mm-hmm. him questions about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, he did a really great talk on Jacobin about coronavirus um, and how um, our system of capitalism, again, like really puts us in a terrible position to deal with uh, this pandemic. And I mean, we've been experiencing it firsthand. There's no question about it. But, you know, as you're talking about all of the historical context necessary to understand why our supply chains were disrupted the way they were and how we were really unable to recover effectively. It made me think of two different things uh, that we do critique a lot, but never in the context of a free trade. Just like the failure of uh, our education system, that's not to say I don't believe in public education, but let's keep it real. The school boards who make decisions about what ends up in textbooks Uh, I think, make a concerted effort to ensure that the historical context that you just mentioned right now about tariffs, for instance, don't actually make it in the textbooks. And then at the same time, the media. So, you know, when you mention that $32 trillion that uh, are stored in, you know, tax shelters, it just, I love that you brought up Medicare for all because that $32 trillion (laughs) figure makes me think of what the estimates were for paying for Medicare for all uh, within the time span of one decade. Yeah. And each reporter, every time they'd interview Bernie Sanders, it was like, how are we going to pay for that? How are we going to pay for that? Literally, if you do nothing else and all you do is find a way to get that money back to the United States where it belongs, you can pay for a decade's worth yeah. of single-payer health care, meaning every single American has the health care they need, the treatment they need for anything, including, you know, optical, dental. It just, you know, we need to think about how, as a country, mostly due to propaganda and ignorance, we've decided that we'd rather allow the wealthy to keep their tax shelters and uh, watch our fellow Americans die from illnesses they don't need to die from. 
Well, it's funny. When it comes to tax shelters, all of a sudden the ruling class becomes very respectful of a nation's sovereignty, <laughs> right? You know, like, I mean, they could, these are, these are tiny little countries. In 15 minutes, like if the international community just put pressure on them to change these laws, it, it would happen in 15 minutes. It's, it's just, it's absurd that they, you know, like, well, what, we, can't, we can't do anything about it. We can't do anything about it. They're a sovereign nation. It's like, yeah, like we respect nation sovereignty in any other context, right? You know, like we just like invade people or bomb people. I mean, I'm not saying we should bomb Bermuda, but you know, if you if they applied any sort of international pressure on them, they would absolutely end these tax havens in 15 minutes. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's just it's it's become all this all this stuff has become kind of very um, ingrained and and almost like accepted like as as like a scientific fact, and it's just. <laughs> It's just not true. Like, it's just, I mean, it's, it's as anti-science as you could be, or, you know what I mean? Like, they, that's like the kind of argument they use against, as a weapon against, you know, critics of, of, of some of this stuff. And again, you know, you, we have to sort of re, be, retake the narrative from the right, because like, they're, they're, they're doing the thing that the right always does well, which is identify a problem, but then offer the incorrect solutions that distract from the actual villains of the whole thing. You know, you... Yeah. And that's and liberals just what they do is like they reject that the problem exists. And then so then people are like, but wait, no, the problem does exist. And that's why like liberals keep on losing credibility over and over and over again on this kind of thing. Um, they just browbeat people and say, like, you know, you're dumb. You're dumb because like, you don't believe in this stuff. And it's like, well, no, you're dumb because you don't believe in this stuff, you know. So. Right. And, and look, so there are people who are just ignorant of the facts that and, you know, <sighs> On one hand, it's not like our media does a good job in in really informing people on what's going on and why things are the way they are. Um, so, like the average citizen, I, I don't want to be too harsh on them. I want, but I do want to be harsh on, um, you know, just like the political establishment mm-hmm. that wittingly, knowingly perpetuates the lies about the wrong solutions. Right. So, you know, when you mentioned the data about how uh, globalization has uh, lifted so many people out of poverty, I mean, I hear that extreme point poverty all the time. Extreme it's always the co- it's right. always the caveat, right? That's true. And it, it reminded me of uh, the Zizek uh, debate with Jordan Peterson because it was the talking point that Jordan Peterson kept using. But what we need to understand is whenever you hear someone cite data or make a point like that, the data can always be twisted to fit any narrative. And that's exactly what's been going on when it comes to this uh, notion of free trade. And, you know, when we think of free trade, we also have to think about the fact that it's not just about trading commodities or trading agricultural products. In the case of, you know, trade with China, it was mostly about uh, trading U.S. goods or, you know, uh, yeah, U.S. goods or U.S. commodities for incredibly cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And so not only did that, um, put our supply chain in jeopardy, and we're feeling the consequences of that right now with the pandemic. Um, but more importantly, I mean, we've seen how it has eroded uh, the economic stability for so many Americans throughout, you know, a few decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are real consequences to that, and uh, it, it's actually led a lot of people to poverty. Yeah. And uh, I love that you brought up uh, the China angle because there's just a lot of I think simplistic thinking about why Donald Trump banned Chinese apps. People mm-hmm. think that it's only because Trump was salty about the fact that TikTok users trolled his Tulsa rally. <laughs> but I mean, 
We've been, during the Obama administration, there was that pivot to China, oh, right? Yeah. Focusing on China. And it, it has to do with our Silicon Valley-fueled economy. If you look at, you mentioned this to me, Nando, if you look at the stock market, I mean, the only um, industry that's doing really well in the stock market during the pandemic is Silicon Valley. Yeah. And uh, the Trump administration wants to protect that. I will never forget Barack Obama going on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon to slow jam the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was the free trade agreement that was written in secret by uh, corporate attorneys and like was supposed to be rammed through Congress without anyone actually reading it or seeing what was inside of it. He went on Jimmy Fallon to slow jam. You know how he has that segment, slow jam the news? Obama went on to slow jam the TPP. It's one of the most embarrassing liberal things I've ever seen. I encourage you to go on YouTube and look for it. It's probably still there. It, I'll never forget it. It's just ingrained in my memory forever. It's amazing. I actually haven't seen it, so I got to check that out. Yeah. All right. Well, um, now I am going to, I guess, do something a little risky considering today's climate, um, but I hope everyone keeps an open mind um, and consider the nuanced perspective I have on so-called cancel culture. Um, so on August 13th, Michael Brooks uh, would have turned 37 years old. He was a good friend of mine, a good friend of Ben Burgess, who uh, recently wrote a wonderful piece in Jacobin about Michael and what his upcoming project was going to be about. It's titled The Cosmopolitan Socialism of Michael Brooks. And, um, you know, I think Ben did such a great job in giving this nuanced description of what Michael believed and how he saw the socialist project really accomplished in the United States. And what that really focuses on is rejecting some of the toxicity, a lot of the toxicity that comes along with cancel culture. So, you know, a lot of what Ben said in his piece really rang true based on conversations I personally had with Michael. And I really appreciated Ben doing that because this is a topic that I think a lot of people feel terrified to approach because it might seem as though you're just serving as an apologist for incredibly bad behavior, maybe some speech that people find uh, worthy of condemnation. But at the same time, you know, if you take a step back and you think about things on a, an actual moral level, and you think about things strategically as a socialist who wants to accomplish a better country and a better world, you know, a lot of this stuff is actually running counter to what we want to do. So after reading his piece, I, I went ahead and found this tweet by Michael in January of 2019. And uh, in the tweet, he writes, choosing compassion in a call-out culture. And uh, the article that he linked to in that tweet uh, was written by a writer named Aaron Rose. Uh, he is a transgender man who worked uh, as a diversity and inclusion specialist. And I honestly hadn't seen that tweet or read that article until recently. And so as I was reading it, I thought it was so enlightening, especially considering what Aaron uh, would do for work, which is, you know, go to different workplaces and uh, train the workforce to be accepting of people who are different than them. Now, on a surface level, that sounds awesome, right? I mean, on a surface level, you want tolerance, you want acceptance, you want everyone to get along. Um, but what Aaron found through this process was uh, something counter to what the actual mission was. So Aaron writes, relying on a call-out culture of shame and dehumanization, however subtle or justified, as motivating tools of change will never resolve the isolation and exclusion we ultimately seek to address. 
So he also talks about his own experience as an inclusion specialist and how isolating and divisive it ended up being. So I want to read you a little excerpt about that. While doing the work of humanizing historically excluded minorities, I had been unwittingly dehumanizing others. It seemed natural to view my work as an us versus them quest to change some of people's minds on behalf of others. But I've come to understand that this approach will only continue to amplify the feeling of uneasy disconnection that characterizes so much of modern life, particularly online. The fear of being judged, the fear of being harmed, the fear that saying the wrong thing will result in excommunication. And that fear is real. I mean, that fear is so real that uh, I really had to sit and think about whether I wanted to do this segment uh, because of what I've seen um, online. And, you know, the justifications that I've even seen from people on the left, you know, these arguments about cancel culture isn't real, the people complaining about cancel culture are individuals who have these massive platforms and have a, a ton of privilege. And so there's really no negative impact of, of what uh, people are calling out here when it comes to cancel culture. But really the truth um, is is it has impacted and negatively impacted the livelihoods of so many private citizens who, um, you know, might have tweeted something that was wrong. There's no question about it. But we need to st step back and as a society question whether or not we, especially as socialists, feel comfortable uh, destroying the livelihoods of people who made a mistake. And we also need to have a moment of self-reflection to uh, accept the fact that we are all flawed. We all have our bad moments and we would want to be treated with compassion, right? And so why is it that we're now finding ourselves in this toxic culture where we've decided that people are irredeemable, uh, worthy of being canceled and shouldn't be able to work where they've been working, shouldn't be able to find a job anywhere else. I mean, that really should be the antithesis of what we believe as socialists, right? And so Ben cites uh, some portions of Michael's book and, it, you know, it really, really hits home, especially considering some of the stuff that we're seeing today. Uh, so Michael's book is Against the Web. Please check it out if you haven't already. And in it, he writes, I'm not arguing that no one on the left has ever said or done anything racist or sexist or transphobic or that we shouldn't care if they do. I'm also not claiming that we should disavow the historical importance of identity in favor of a simplistic economic reductionism that tells people not to worry about merely cultural issues. That's exactly the wrong way to fight the vampire's castle, citing a, a, an essay that, you know, had a profound impact on Michael. He shared it with me, and I think everyone should read it if you haven't already. He continues to write in his book, what I am saying, however, is that we will continue to devour each other and thus fail to win power in society if we don't reject the confused moralism that permeates so much left-wing discourse. And you know what? We really did get a big old taste of that confused moralism just this past week, and it had to do with a progressive candidate in uh, Massachusetts's first district. Alex Morse is his name. He's actually primarying um, a pretty disgusting corporate Democrat, Richard Neal, um, who squashed legislation that would end surprise, surprise medical billing. That's the kind of corporate Democrat Richard Neal is. Um, and, you know, we as uh, people who want a better country, who want to actually pass policies like the Green New Deal 
or Medicare for all should fight aggressively to get someone like Alex, Alex Morse elected. But it doesn't really take much for the left to turn on someone like Morse. All you need to do is put out ridiculous, vague, nonsensical allegations against him, and the left will turn on him in an instant. So that's what happened this past week. Uh, Well, it's been going on for a little more than a week, but uh, the college Democrats at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where Alex Morse used to teach, he's now the mayor of Holyoke, and uh, again, he's a congressional candidate, Um, They put out this letter alleging Alex Morse of doing things that made them uncomfortable when he was a lecturer, essentially an adjunct professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, right? So this is when he was between the ages of 25 and 30. He's a young guy. And I should also note that he's gay because uh, the hit job that I'm about to describe has uh, an extra layer of a homosexual trope involved that really disgusts me and shows you just how unbelievably toxic cancel culture can really be. So these college Dems put out this letter telling Morse that he's no longer invited to their events. And then they list all of these allegations against him. Like, and I'm not even kidding, this was a literal allegation against him, matching with students on dating apps like Tinder and Grindr when he was an adjunct professor. So in order to match with student, to match with anyone, right, you would have to note in your profile that you're looking for a certain demographic. Remember, he's between the ages of 25 and 30. And uh, yeah, there are students in colleges between the ages of 25 and 30, and you can match with anyone, right? It's a two-way street. And so he matched with students and they thought that was good enough. If if he's matching with students, well, then he must be a predator. We're going to list this as something that makes him, um, you know, not worthy as a candidate in this congressional race. Having sex with students, by the way, none of which were his actual students. So uh, he was accused of having sex with students um, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and uh, it's like sister schools. Okay. Sending, I mean, just so ridiculous. Sending messages to students that made them feel uncomfortable. So (laughs) they allege that Morse would use some of these campus Democrats uh, events to pick up college students, and then he would proceed to add them on Instagram and send them uh, messages that made them uncomfortable. So later, it turned out uh, that these allegations were nonsense. Uh, Even before we had evidence that these allegations were nonsense, I called it out and I said that it was um, pretty sickening to see people on the left uh, repeat or regurgitate some some of this stuff because it was so clearly a hit job. It was so clearly the weaponization of cancel culture to destroy a candidate who really does threaten the uh, material interests of the wealthiest people in this country, right? Um, so, but leftists fell for it, and it was de- it was devastating. I'm going to give you a few examples right now. Um, so these are tweets uh, that emerged after these allegations came out disqualifying, pure and simple. I'm sorry to the survivors of this misconduct. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, The College Democrats of Puerto Rico also chimed in on this, sending our support to College Dems of uh, Massachusetts and to the survivors who bravely told their stories. By the way, uh, no one was on the record with their names. Everything was incredibly vague. And we didn't hear from a single person who actually engaged in any type of... Uh, intimacy with Alex Morse. 
Let me give you more. Uh, this is so disappointing to see as a five college, college, uh, colleges, college Dem alum and former until now supporter of his campaign. I'm glad that the people targeted by this misconduct spoke out. I'll give you one more. He can only have sex with someone of an equal power level. If he has sex with someone of lower power, he's an opportunist. If he has sex with someone at a higher power level, he's <laughs> unable to make his own decisions. We are now a caste system. <laughs> and remember, yeah. he had no power over anyone that he allegedly had sex with. He did admit that he had sex with college students, but he was young himself, and none of them were his college students. And, you know, this, uh, like never-ending backlash over a ridiculous story that should never have been published in the first place led to calls for an investigation. And as you can expect, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst publicly announced that they will investigate. UMass Amherst hires lawyer to investigate allegations against Alex Morse. Um, Then you have the presumptive representative, uh, Jamal Bowman, who uh, just won in a stunning upset in um, New York against a corporate Democrat, Elliot Engel. He decided to distance himself immediately and release this statement. As a school principal, I believe it's important to listen to students and to be sensitive to the unequal power dynamics in these relationships. That's why I've decided to put a pause on my endorsement and any campaign activity for Alex Morse while we learn more about the situation. And um, after Bowman's uh, statement, we also learned that the Sunrise Movement, which, by the way, has not rescinded this statement, um, decided to uh, distance themselves as well. Bowman's statement comes after the Sunrise Movement suspended its campaigning for Morse. Additionally, the group's Western Massachusetts Coalition announced on Monday that its members voted to rescind its endorsement of the Holyoke mayor. Yeah, but uh, maybe they should have actually looked into these allegations and gave their ally, someone who is literally a political ally, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Instead, they decided to immediately, and I'm going to use it, I'm going to use this phrase, they decided to immediately virtue signal to claim moral superiority, to claim that they're the good guys, and that they are willing to, at the drop of a dime, turn their backs on someone who actually wants to fight alongside them for the policies they claim to care about the most. But I guess climate change isn't really that important when you can go ahead and signal to the world that you're morally superior, right? Absolutely pathetic. And then guess what? We learned the truth about these allegations. Let's watch. One of the things that the students had alleged was improper was that he had added students to his close friends' stories on Instagram. They use language something like, you know, in a way that is commonly known to indicate intimacy in our generation, something like that. Okay, so now it looks like, based on this Intercept reporting, we have that conversation in question. Here's what they said. Um, Thank you. Good to see you, too. How's the rest of your weekend, Mm -hmm. Alex Morse says. Really controversial stuff there. Um, The student replies, pretty good. I went home last night to surprise my mom for her birthday. How about you? Pretty. So Morse then says, ah, that's nice. How was that? I had an event to go to last night to speak, then had a wine tasting party at a friend's house. Now I'm in North Adams about to march in a parade. Okay, yeah. so that is the conversation just question. Reading that thing. The Intercept also got yeah, some you should of these, have You should have given a little warning there. A trigger, I know, you know just, it's offensive yeah. to people. I, I do apologize um, in advance. And so the, the students communicated to each other as part of this setup. They were like, read that message. Also, don't mind me totally leading him on. And then Ennis goes on to say, this will sink his campaign. 
This will sink his campaign. So who is Ennis? Uh, well, that's uh, Timothy Ennis, who was at the time um, the head of the U- uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst Democrats, <laughs> campus Democrats. And uh, he described himself as, I'm not even kidding, this is real, a Richard Neal stan. Richard Neal <laughs> is the corporate Democrat uh, who Tim Ennis thought would give him you know, an entry into the world of politics. Apparently, Richard Neal, a politician, a corporate Democrat, was teaching a journalism class on campus that Ennis <laughs> was taking. I mean, the story just gets more and more bizarre. So due to his, uh, you know, career goals, Ennis decided to try to help Richard Neal out by sinking uh, Morris's campaign in the most disgusting, toxic way possible. But what I want to have people really understand is that the current culture we're living in had already primed us to accept normal human activity, right? A person like Morse having sex, which is normal human activity. We were primed to think that that's unacceptable. We were primed to think that we have to. We have to publicly condemn him in order to signal to the world that we're good people. And it was so devastating to see that happen because, uh, first of all, it relied on a homophobic trope, right? This idea that a gay man was preying on these young boys. Yeah. That was really the you know, underlying issue here. And, you know, that culture of uh, cancel culture, again, primed us to accept that, right, as, as a reality, as a truth. And you know, publicly condemn this person who hadn't done anything wrong. It's absolutely disgusting. And so, look, I think that there is um, a moral issue here. I mean, I think if you really care about morality above everything else, how is it moral to destroy the life and the career aspirations of uh, an ally, you know, just based on nothing, based on the most vague accusations and the vague accusations themselves, even if true, didn't indicate that he did anything wrong. He, no one accused him of having sex with one of his own students. No one. So what exactly did he do wrong? I, I, don't, I literally don't understand it. So is he just not allowed to have sex? And it made me think of like the Reagan era and how um, conservative culture became in that era uh, because of Reagan's policies and because of all the fear-mongering that happened with AIDS. And HIV. And so I'm like, wow, when did leftists become, you know, worse than conservatives in the Reagan era when it comes to our lives, our personal lives, our culture, all of that? And so there's that portion of it. But there's one other portion that I want to talk about. And this is really what I what Michael wanted to focus on, um, because there's a strategic component as well. The left needs to appeal to a broader base of people. We just do. And you're not going to do that. It's not going to be an appealing, you know, fight to join if you're constantly worried, if you're living in fear about something in your personal life going public and then people twisting your personal life into something that's worthy of condemnation, right? And I think all of us know this. I think all of us feel this. I think all of us are constantly walking on eggshells. It does absolutely nothing to improve the lives of people who have been disenfranchised in this country. All we've been seeing is a bunch of superficial change to give us the optics of reform. Things like renaming things or condemning certain people or firing certain people. But when you take a step back and you look at what's happening and and how 
society is changing, are we noticing any fundamental reform in the way disenfranchised people are treated in this country? We're not. We're not. And we might get a little bit of a, you know, like a rush by seeing someone's life get destroyed if you disagree with them politically. I mean, I think that's weird and questionable anyway. But other than that, what what happens to really improve your life or the life of others? And how do we how do we just run away from this ideology and focus on something that's a little more compassionate, that understands that people are flawed, but, you know, create a society where we're willing to engage in dialogue with people in order to help them evolve. And Michael really did that for me, not when it comes to racial issues or, or cultural issues, but he did that to me when it comes to, you know, just my views on capitalism and socialism. I didn't even realize how much of a capitalistic bubble I was operating under. I didn't really understand the critiques or criticisms of capitalism. And to be quite honest with you guys, every time I would uh, engage in any type of conversation about capitalism with leftists, it came from this incredibly judgmental and pretentious place that made me want to reject their arguments. But Michael came at it from a completely different perspective. He brought me in. He was understanding. He was patient. He was kind. And I learned more from him than literally any other person in, you know, the media landscape because of his willingness to hear me out and not judge me, right? So we need to think about that as we try to build uh, the socialist, um, you know, movement in America. And, um, you know, one of the people that Michael really turned to when it came to some clarity on this issue was Dr. Cornell West. And uh, I promise I'm almost done with this segment, but I do want to leave you with uh, what Cornell West has to say about cancel culture and uh, what he refers to as, you know, fortified solidarity. Well, I think the first thing to say is fundamentally it's not about identity. It's about solidarity. It's not about your skin pigmentation. It's about the quality of your courage connected to poor and working people. I don't believe in canceling anybody. I mean, Christians don't believe in canceling people. Everybody can bounce back. I believe everybody's a brother and sister and they have the capacity to be changed and transformed. So I don't believe in canceling anybody whatsoever. But I do, in fact say that when we talk about wokeness, I'm not talking about just being woke, because you can be obsessed with wokeness and suffer from insomnia. I'm talking (laughs) about being fortified. (laughs) Are you a fighter in the long run? We don't want people woke and sprinters and run out of gas, and the next thing you know, they end up well-adjusted to injustice. That's like so much of the bourgeoisies, no matter what color they are. Middle-class folks that just can't wait to be engaged in upward mobility in order to go mainstream and become a new a new star with all the spectacle and overlook what's going on on the ground of people who are suffering. That's not the model. The model is Martin King, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Ella Baker. What are they talking about? Fortified. Are you fortified for the long run? Do you have your cemetery clothes on? Are you coughing ready to live and die for something bigger than you, like a fundamental transformation of a capitalist civilization? That's my tradition. Amazing. That video is so incredible. So incredible. So, Nando, I want to bring you in. Um, God, I love that video so much uh, because, you know, the thing that I've been just puzzled about is how do you dedicate your life to being part of a movement? Let's say you've joined Sunrise, you know, you're, you're, you're putting in the hours, you're putting in the work, you understand the threat of climate change in this country. 
And then you so easily, not in this country, in this world, I mean, and then you so easily like turn your back on an ally who understands the importance of that fight. I mean, and so is your activism, you know, is it genuine? It makes me wonder. Or is that like part of your career trajectory? You get what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I, I think what, what Cornell West talked about at the end there is the key is that, you know, even so many people, I mean, it's, it's, it's normal in a way that have internalized the logic of like neoliberalism, competition, uh, you know, that we're all kind of in competition with each other. Like even, even people who, who understand that kind of intellectually have in, internalized that. Um, so you, that's why, that's why you see people like in the Sunrise Movement, or, and I don't want to like single out the Sunrise Movement, but just in general, even on the left, who have internalized that, that sort of desire for upward mobility, and, and that often just comes at the expense of other people, right? So um, it's just, that's the system we uh, exist in. We have to transcend that. I mean, that's something that Michael always talked about, is you have to transcend that somehow. It's within, it's living within you, <laughs> in a way, you know, like it's mm-hmm. been beaten into our brains since we were children. It's just, it's, it, this First of all, your commentary was was spectacular and 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 incredibly well done, and it's just it got me thinking about how um, you know there is there is a the real kind of horseshoe theory is that you know wokeness in a way is often kind of accepts the premises and logical conclusions of like insane white supremacists, you know, like this idea yep. that you cannot have uh, any any power imbalance in a relationship um, leads to some pretty weird conclusions. For example, like. Any interracial uh, relationship, you know, there's going to be an inherent power imbalance. Like if a white man dates a black woman, um, whatever, you're just going to like, how, how do you how do you navigate that? You know, like, are you supposed to like not do that because there is a power imbalance there? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I met my to- husband when he was an employee at a club, at a nightclub. Hell yeah. I mean, there's a power imbalance. Th- I know. Yeah. I mean, there was a power imbalance there. And I mean, he seemed to like it. Uh, but- <laughs> But I mean, I mean, I just, I just want to live in a society where we're not judging the personal lives of two consenting adults. Like, what are we doing? No, yeah, it's insane. I mean, people tried to, people tried to cancel Glenn Glenn Greenwald for his relationship with, uh, with his husband, Um, and it's just, it's, it's really toxic and it's insane, and it, and it, it's a huge uh, barrier that we have to overcome to, to, like you said, build a mass movement. You know, it, it, this Alex Morse thing also just got me thinking about how short our memories are and how we need to learn. I mean, Jamal Bowman, he, he's new to politics. And, you know, in, in a way, I don't blame him. Uh, you know, I understand that, he again, it's, it's the, the problem is the culture that exists and that he's entering. But, like, look what they did to Jeremy Corbyn. You know what I mean? Like, these yep. are these are, and it's been revealed beyond any reasonable doubt that that was just a pure hatchet job. You know what I mean? And and many people on the left, like good, well-intentioned people, like accepted those premises. And it's just like you just got to see a hatchet job for what it is. And it's it's it was so painfully obvious. Um, and, and you just have to like you have to be able to be strong and, and, and support your allies when there's just the slightest bump in the road, you know, because if not, we're yeah. just we're just going to fall apart every single time. And, the, you know, the, the people in power are very, very smart about this stuff. They know they know how to exploit yeah. These little, these insane kind of things, you know, and and they're like, oh my god, this is gonna sink his campaign. I, I just like that guy Ennis, man. That this is, what what kind of like what kind of psycho do you have to be to just be like a twenty year old college Democrat who's like a Richard Neal stan and wants to just like end the career? You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah, it's just you really know, terrifying. I mean, Ennis for people like Ennis, it's like 
two consenting adults, um, you know, effing. Yeah. <laughs> Unacceptable. Like, we're going to go ahead and demonize. But Richard Neal effing you when it comes to your health care, that's okay. That's okay. I stand Richard Neal. Uh, yeah. Listen, Bill Clinton is going to be is going to have a prime speaking spot at the DNC. He's going to be a you know keynote speaker. Liberals are going to gush over it. They're going to love it. You know, this is a man. If we want to talk about uh, you know problematic sexual uh, encounters, you know, power imbalances. I mean, a twenty two year old unpaid intern at the White House when you're the president of the United States. Not to mention all the Epstein stuff. So yeah, it's just it's it, recognize bad faith. When it comes, I mean, and, and that's, the, that's the lesson you have to understand is like, it's all bad faith. They don't actually believe in any of this shit. It's going to be used as a cudgel against the left. That's what exactly. you have to realize. It's just, they're ne- it's never going to be used to cudgel against them. They're going to survive all this stuff always. It's just because they have power. You know, it's going to be used against people who don't have power, who are trying to challenge that power. So you have to transcend that and transcend it within yourself. You know, I transcend yeah. it within yourself. And understand that, you know, the fight is bigger than you. You know, Michael preached a lot about having a little humility. Um, And I do think that's important because once you feel the need to publicly call someone out, um, just take a step back and ask yourself, like, hey, how would I feel if someone knew about this crappy thing that I did in my past? And we've all done crappy things. Come on. Like, I'm, we're I'm all trying to think flawed. what's the worst, the, my worst moment, like, and if that was aired publicly. I mean, I just feel so bad for Alex Morse. I mean, this is just has to be like the most traumatic, painful thing. Like he, every Ugh. single time he he engages like with someone romantically, he's gonna be in the back of his mind. He's gonna be thinking like, oh my god, like you know, it's just gonna, it's impossible not to. I saw it happen. I saw it happen like firsthand to Jenk Uger when he was running for California's fifth congressional district. It was one of the most difficult, devastating things to yeah. watch happen in real time, especially as someone who I've been close with for over 13 years. I know him really well. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, cancel culture has been used as a weapon to destroy the left, and it has worked. It has worked, and that's what we need to be cognizant of. Yeah. All right. Um, why don't we move on to our interview? You want to um, sure. introduce? Yeah, I'm very excited to have uh, Lee Phillips uh, join us. Lee Phillips is one of the smartest, boldest, best thinkers on the left, in my opinion. He's an author, science writer. He wrote a book called The People's Republic of Walmart. He wrote another book called Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse of Porn Addicts, A Defensive Growth. I see what you did there. Progress, Industry, and Stuff. Uh, Lee, thank you for joining us. How are you? Good to be here. So, Lee, I remember listening to you on Chapo, I want to say like a year ago or something, and you kind of predicted this pandemic stuff, not the the actual pandemic, but the weakness of our ability to deal with a potential pandemic. Um, So I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how have you been living through this, um, knowing that you kind of saw it coming, that you were kind of a Nostradamus in that for all of this? Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty weird. I mean, I wasn't, I'm just reporting on this stuff. I would imagine that the, uh, the clinicians, the coronavirus specialists, the public health officials who've been warning about, uh, these problems, uh, specific to coronaviruses, but also with other issues, um, related to infectious disease, particularly around, um, antibiotic resistance for, for years, um, I, I imagine they are very frustrated and furious that this is this is being allowed to, uh, uh, to to happen. You know, hundreds of thousands of deaths, and uh, and we knew this was coming. Um, and all of them um, uh, from the from the get go have said that the the fundamental problem is a lack of market incentive. Uh, so these aren't you know these aren't radicals. These aren't you know 
uh, democratic socialists saying this. These are just specialists in their own their own field. After the SARS outbreak in 2003, and then about 10 years later, the MERS uh, outbreak, uh, Middle East um, Respiratory Syndrome, uh, two other novel coronaviruses, um, you know, they were putting out um, papers, review articles, um, public making public statements, uh, saying that uh, the, the fundamental problem is that there aren't enough uh, patients uh, with these 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 what turned out to be smaller outbreaks, but we didn't know that they were going to be small. Uh, they're in some places, in some cases, particularly with MERS, they're simply in the wrong place. So uh, in the Middle East, they're you know the patients aren't going to be wealthy enough to care about, and um, then the sort of coronaviruses that we're the endemic coronaviruses, that is the the ones that are just around that we've dealt with for hundreds, uh, thousands of years, um, which cause some amount of uh, the common cold. It, the the impact is simply too mild for um, for drug companies to care about. And the 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 fundamental problem here is that the the just the huge the high cost of drug and vaccine development. Uh, means that if there aren't enough people to buy the product, it's not going to be uh, profitable. And you can compare that to, um, you know, it costs about, you know, roughly about a billion dollars US for every new molecular entity or, you know, effectively drug. So if you're going to be spending a billion dollars to to develop that, to take it through clinical trials, and at the end of that, you have somebody who, uh, let's even say that it's it's successful with with the case of antibiotics, you take the antibiotics, uh, a course of antibiotics for maybe a few days, few weeks with tuberculosis, maybe a few months at the most. And then if it's working, you don't take it anymore. Compare that to some drug for a chronic disease for which the patient has to take the drug every day for the rest of their life. Mm. Um, it's just the, the market incentive uh, pushes the company in that, in that direction and away from developing antibiotics. And they got out of uh, the development of antibiotics, out of vaccines for about three decades ago. Yeah. Wow. That's I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but oftentimes the argument you hear from libertarians is, you know, without the incentive for innovation that comes from capitalism, uh, you wouldn't have uh, the development of new drugs or vaccines. It's really the uh, you know, it's the financial incentives that uh pressure people or, or at least incentivize people to uh, develop these types of medicines and vaccines and services. Um, and so what's your response to that? So let's say, uh, you know, we're functioning under um, a, a socialistic society where uh, we're not relying on free markets for innovation. How do you uh, envision pharmaceuticals uh, to be developed, innovated, you know? Right. Well, there's two things to say about that. Uh, the first is that there's nothing wrong with these companies when they're producing something that we need um, if it's profitable. So that's great. I'm, um, I'm happy that they're doing that. The problem comes when uh, we know that we need to develop something, but it isn't profitable or it's even insufficiently profitable and they, they just won't produce it. The second thing that I would say is that the reality is the vast majority of medical research is not actually performed by the large pharmaceutical companies, but instead by um, government laboratories or university laboratories, effectively funded by the, uh, the public sector. Uh, so the story that libertarians tell about the, you know, the bravery, the risk taking of, uh, of entrepreneurs 
in the private sector, um, it's just not really true. Um, what we need is uh, public. We need to take um, pharmaceuticals out of the uh, the private sector and put them entirely into the in the public sector. In Canada, in much of Western Europe, uh, healthcare has largely been taken out of the private sector, and that's great. You don't have that in the United States yet, which is unfortunate. Uh, but even in these places, we've basically only done half the job. The other half of the job of uh, bringing uh, social justice uh, to healthcare is to take pharmaceuticals out of the private sector and, and, and effectively nationalize them. And then when we decide, we recognize that there's something that we need to do and it isn't profitable, we can cross-subsidize though uh, that uh, by um, spending the money, the, the revenues that we get from the profitable drugs. Mm-hmm. Like the postal model, really, it takes a, a lot of labor and it's very expensive to send a letter from New York uh, to Anchorage, Alaska, uh, but you don't pay that much more to do it. Um, what happens is that the, uh, those, uh, those routes that are highly profitable, where there's great um, you know, population centers, they cross-subsidize um, the, uh, the sending of, of letters or packages or whatever to those other areas. That's in the public, uh, public uh, postal service. And the, the idea behind that was that regardless of where, the, where you live in the United States or in Canada or where it happens to be, no matter if you're in a, a remote rural area, uh, by dint of being a citizen, you have the right to the, access, to the same access to communications as anybody in a major city. And we should say exactly the same thing with, uh, with, with pharmaceuticals. The profitable drugs would, cro- would uh, subsidize the unprofitable ones. Yeah, I love that you drew that parallel, because if you look at um, privatized delivery companies like UPS or FedEx, they do not deliver um, to rural parts of the country. In fact, what they'll do is uh, they'll deliver it to uh, one other like densely populated part of the country and then rely on the postal service uh, to deliver to rural areas. So I think that that parallel is really important. Um, So when the pandemic began, I remember having a conversation with Nando and Michael, actually, about what Bernie Sanders should do. At that point in the primary election, it wasn't really set in stone that Biden was the the candidate. Um, Of course, he uh, lost a bunch of states uh, during Super Tuesday at that point, but it's still, there was a tiny possibility. And I thought, you know what, maybe if Bernie Sanders uh, uses this opportunity to really highlight the failures of the healthcare system that we have, this privatized model, well, then maybe people will finally get it because at that point, tens of millions of people had already lost their jobs and they lost the health insurance that came along with those jobs. And so the whole argument by uh, corporate Democrats really started to fall apart. Um, but now fast forward to where we are in the election. Joe Biden's the candidate. He's chosen Kamala Harris as his VP. And he was asked for the second time on the record what he would do about a single-payer health care bill that lands on his desk. Would he veto it? And here's what his answer was. The pandemic has exposed, as I've mentioned, so many weaknesses in the healthcare system. Um, the most vulnerable, often black and brown communities, uh, have been handling much of the financial burden. Before the pandemic, you were against comprehensive single-payer system. Um, now, if, me- if Medicare for All came across your desk as the pandemic um, has hit so hard, would you veto it? It's not going to come across my desk, but... Look, the pandemic has not only torn through our nation, devastating families and wrecking economies, it's exacerbated some of the worst inequities. I'm going to fight for health and health equities, but 
You don't need, the quickest way to get that is for black and Latino Americans to have access to the Obamacare with a public option. That's the quickest way we can get everybody covered. But hasn't this pandemic and the tsunami of layoffs shown the limits of private health care that is tied to employment? No, it hasn't, in my view. There's countries that have, in fact, uh, single-payer systems that hadn't helped them very much either. The question is, what do we do about rallying the pandemic and treating those who are affected by it? Everyone who's affected by the pandemic is access to free care for anything having to do with that pandemic. So that, that, that answer blows my mind, especially considering what we're dealing with right now in the United States. And uh, I mean, think about it. He would have that legislation on his desk, which would mean it passed, you know, with bipartisan votes. Um, and he wouldn't commit to avoiding a veto. Uh, but I wanted to get your response to that, Lee. Well, it's, it's utterly irrational from an epidemiological perspective. The man clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> um, it, in the United States, uh, millions of people have lost their health care, um, which means that um, going and being tested or when uh, drugs, become, you know, therapeutics uh, come, come available, when a vaccine comes, uh, comes available, it means that they will be scared to go and get tested. They'll be scared to, uh, to take the drugs because of the cost or, and, and the vaccine. Um, that means that the, 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 the virus will continue to propagate through, uh, through, the, through, through society. In every single other Western country, nobody has lost their job, uh, their, their health care as a result of losing their jobs. This is the fundamental problem with only looking at um, uh, health care in terms of uh, sort of inequities between, uh, between the patients themselves. Even the rich are threatened by the lack of Medicare for all. Because that virus continues to propagate, it's the same as um, if you don't provide Medicare to, uh, to, to immigrants, even to so-called illegal immigrants, they will be scared of going to, to the hospital, to clinics, to, 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 to see if they, when they you know, get a sore throat or whatever, and then it later turns out to be um, uh, the coronavirus, uh, they're scared to do that. That means that those uh, people in the wealthy communities and their gated communities are still threatened by the virus. It makes sense even for rich people for there to be Medicare for all. Yeah, it's 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 really just absolutely infuriating. Uh, but I, Lee, I want to ask you about um, planning because that's something that you've written about a lot about you, the People's Republic of Walmart. Um, it's it's the it's the sort of boogeyman that is used by critics of the left. Um, that if you have planning in any economy, it, chaos ensues, mass death, famine, all that stuff is is attributed to this idea of planning, and that you need to let the market just kind of decide, you know, millions of people engaging in, in little micro interactions in the market is what actually kind of creates the most, uh, the best outcomes or whatever. Um, can you, can you give your thoughts? Because it's, it, it really is, I think, just a critical thing to push back on. And, and I think no one has written more confidently or, 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 or aggressively as you have on this. Sure. And um, I mean, in the People's Republic of Walmart, Michal Wazworski and myself, my co-author, uh, we basically do a sort of um, um, introductory history to the, uh, the what's called the economic calculation debate, also known as the socialist calculation debate, um, which was, you know, it, it emerged in the 1920s, and it was a debate between conservative and left-wing economists. And the, um, the conservative economists basically said, I mean, I'm really simplifying here, uh, but basically said that 
you know, you could plan very, maybe perhaps very simple um, sectors like coal or steel or something like that with you know, a very small number of inputs and outputs. Uh, but the minute that you get to uh, trying to plan much more complicated systems, um, that there's simply too many variables involved um, uh, to, uh, for any um, set of bureaucrats or even, you know, a computer uh, to keep track of. And that invariably that will result in mismatches between su- supply and demand. Uh, the the uh, the gaps and shortages will cause uh, will cause chaos. That chaos will in turn result in a demand for you know a hard man. Therefore, you will have authoritarianism. And there you go. That's the story of the Soviet Union. That's ex- explanation as to why the Soviet Union was so so dreadful uh, with respect to human rights. Well, it's actually the other way around. Um, uh, what we try to show within, and I think we do comprehensively show in, in the book, is that today we have corporate entities, firms on the scale of Walmart or Amazon who uh, are engaged in, uh, you know, the Walmart is you know roughly the size, a little bit smaller, but roughly the size of the Soviet Union at its height, in, uh, height of its economy in the 1970s with many, many, many more variables involved in the planning of um, production and distribution internally. So even though it operates externally in the market, internally, all the decisions are made by planning. There's no sort of um, uh, competition between different uh, managers and workers to find out who's going to bid the the highest price to get, you know, Jill to move a, a box from one shelf over to, uh, another shelf. They just tell the people to do this. So it, it is planning on this vast scale, roughly on the scale of a, a you know the Soviet economy, um, and it works tremendously well. The problem uh, for us as progressives, as socialists, however, is that it's planning, but not in the service of ordinary people of, of society. It's planning only in the interest of the shareholders, or in the case of Walmart, the Walmart fam, uh, the Walton family. Um, so really the question around planning is not whether it works or doesn't work. It clearly does. There's lots of evidence to, uh, to show that it does. It's in whose interest. Yeah, yeah, that's such that's such a great point. And, you know, the one thing that it took me a while to really uh, grasp this because I, I used to believe that, you know, rather than making something public, like let's say nationalizing healthcare. You could possibly, you know, keep it under a privatized model, but just regulate it effectively enough so people uh, don't get left behind. Uh, but they always find a way to to skirt those regulations or engage in corruption or literally legalize bribery uh, in order to change uh, the laws and regulations uh, that, you know, would impact their profit motive. And so uh, just real quick, going back to what you said earlier about people feeling afraid to go to the doctor because of the high costs. You know, there was some new data out that showed during the pandemic, private healthcare companies in the United States literally doubled their profits. (laughs) And the reason why they doubled their profits is because people are afraid (laughs) to go to the doctor. Um, So they just deal, they they don't take advantage of any of the services. They just stay at home um, and hope for the best. And we're, we're functioning under this incredibly broken model. Um, so I want to pivot a little bit and talk about, uh, you know, cancel culture, because you wrote a great piece about it in Jacobin, you know, in researching for my own segment on this, uh, I came across that piece and I wanted to share a few excerpts because I think there's a common misconception about 
who cancel culture negatively impacts. Uh, there's this idea that it's only people in positions of power who are complaining about it, and they're just worried about dealing with some criticism. But there are real consequences for people based on valid political speech. So you give these two examples. Uh, in 2014, the University of Illinois withdrew an offer of employment to English professor Stephen Saleda, after some faculty, students, and donors asserted that his tweets critical of Benjamin Netanyahu's administration during the Gaza war were anti-Semitic. Due to the controversy, he's been driven out of academic employment and now works as a bus driver. Also, political scientist Norman Finkelstein, another critic of the Israeli occupation, has denied tenure, was denied tenure at DePaul University in 2007 after a successful campaign by the Anti-Defamation League and lawyer Alan Dershowitz. He oh, likewise yeah. had, it's amazing. He likewise has difficulty finding employment and says he struggles to pay the rent. And so, you know, this idea that, oh, the only people complaining about cancel culture are these people who have power, they have money, they have these giant platforms, and they don't really suffer any consequences of what they're complaining about. But, you know, first of all, I think a lot of that is like, like they inflate the power of these people to begin with. But there are private citizens and there are academics who have been um, ousted from their jobs, from their careers, uh, because everything has become, I guess, worthy of cancellation. And I wanted you to kind of expand on that a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's Turkey's voting for Christmas uh, when the left supports cancel culture, when the left uh, sneers at conceptions of free speech as free speech, um, uh, when it abandons uh, other civil liberties norms uh, like due process and presumption of innocence. Uh, the minute that we give up on this stuff, uh, it will be used absolutely by the right against us. And the, the two examples there of Stephen Salida and Norman Finkelstein um, are, are sort of clear examples. In, uh, in, in the province of Ontario, in, in, in Canada, there have been multiple efforts by the provincial uh, government to try to ban um, uh, Palestine solidarity activities from, uh, from university and college campuses. Um, and Canada actually doesn't have uh, strong free speech protections in the way the United States does, just because of historical reasons. So the grounds that uh, the uh, the politicians are using to try to ban this from campus is that it's hate speech, and of course this is being whipped up by uh, the you know the sort of the worst um, apologists for the Netanyahu regime in in in, in Israel. But you know I, why why is a science journalist writing suddenly about um, cancel culture and free speech? The reason that I come to this issue. Uh, one is because, you know, as a journalist, I'm, I'm always very interested in uh, defending uh, the right of speech, but mainly because, you know, I write a lot about climate change and energy systems. And uh, throughout the, uh, the uh, 2000s, uh, when I was just getting you know, started with my career, you saw in the United States under George W. Bush, he was muzzling climate scientists and other co and conservation biologists the government of Canada uh, under a Tory government, a conservative government of uh, Stephen Harper was doing the same thing, muzzling climate scientists as, as was Tony Abbott, the um, conservative prime minister of Australia. So for me, it was just so obvious that the left has to fight for free speech because the minute that we abandon this, the right will use the, the rationale that we have uh, or the liberal left that has abandoned free speech to and turn that against us. And, and why do you think 
that it like why do you think the left has been so enthusiastic to adopt all this like why do you th- what do you think is going on there why why have they why have the turkeys voted for christmas <laughs> so to speak on the left i mean there's a lot of things that have gone into this but i think and this comes back to a lot of the discussions that we're having on the left at the moment around um what it's an it's an ill-defined term and i accept that it's problematic but basically the the professional managerial class or pmc i feel that in the 1970s and 1980s when the you know neoliberal regimes of 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 margaret thatcher ronald reagan and so on and so forth around the world were historically victorious in breaking the power of the trade unions and and the working class um the left began to sort of be partially separate from the working class whereas previously while it wasn't necessarily synonymous, there are always people who had been um, sort of middle class or upper class uh, who were class traders and sided with uh, the working class. And there were some uh, workers who were you know, who voted Tory, who voted Republican. Um, nevertheless, broadly, you could say the left and the working class were more or less the same thing. Since the 19th victory of, of neoliberalism and breaking the power of the working class and trade unions, th- th- these two things have separated. And there's a series of pathologies that I think operate within um, a sort of a left that is entirely built out of the middle class around some of the things that what Anna was just talking about inter- and, 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 and you were talking about, Nando, with respect to the careerism and uh, the sort of, you know, pushing people down. And whereas the weight, the social weight of the trade unions, the social weight of the working class, when they come up against these sort of pathologies, uh, they just say, don't be ridiculous. This is absurd. We know that um, every day at work, uh, the bosses try to shut us down. Um, uh, if we speak out, we we intrinsically get the importance of free speech. And I think that's fundamentally the problem. And I don't think things are really going to change until the working class begins to move for itself again. Well, yeah, that's yeah. about as... That's about as good a historical a historiography of it, I guess, is, is would be the right way. Um, I mean, you know, Mike no, no, always I, talked about historicizing things and not, um, you know, naturalizing things. And that was about as good an answer as I could have hoped for. <laughs> yeah, just... Nando, I actually want to ask one more question about this because um, I really want to think about how we can strategically uh, like combat this culture, right? And and it's, I'm going to keep it real. I mean, it's difficult to do as someone who looks the way I do, right? And so it's very easy for people to just minimize what I'm trying to say or dismiss what I'm trying to say by putting me in a category of privilege and all of this. Um, but what I'm trying to communicate, and I think what Michael was really trying to communicate um, before he passed, was if we really want to accomplish uh, some of these lofty goals in this country or throughout the world, uh, we need to be willing to appeal to a broader group of people and just be welcoming, you know, and not not uh, present ourselves as individuals who are going to turn our backs on anyone for any past mistake, whether it's big or small. And so how do we communicate that in a way that doesn't just automatically get dismissed um, based on the way we look? I don't know. I don't know. I think we are going to see um, things change a little bit. I mean, just the discussion you guys have just had. um, I think a lot of people around Jacobin, um, more people are beginning to uh, speak up. And I think part of it comes down to just confidence. So many people have written me emails um, or, or DMs um, as saying, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I'm, I'm afraid to, uh, to say it. 
And the more that we speak out against this, uh, the more people have the confidence that they're not alone in this. Mm. So these kinds of conversations are utterly essential. Well, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. This was this was absolutely fascinating. Again, I highly recommend Lee's writing, uh, recommend his books. That confidence that Lee was just talking about, he has it in in spades because he's done the work and he's been around. He didn't just join this kind of thing in the last two seconds, so he he's got some context. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. This was this was wonderful. All right, take care, guys. All righty. You know what? Let's keep it rolling unless Let's you want to take a break, Nando. No, I don't need to, I don't need right. to pee or anything like that. I'm good. I know. Me either. Me either. I'm <laughs> loving the show today. Um, so why don't we do our salt segment? And uh, you're the one who brought this to our attention, and I absolutely love it. Um, so I'll, I'll set the story up and we can talk about it. Um, so... There is currently a a full-blown assault on the Postal Service by the Trump administration in an attempt to uh, basically rig the 2020 election. We're still in the middle of this pandemic with no end in sight, honestly, because of the mismanagement of this pandemic. And so many people are going to want to vote by mail. Uh, That only makes sense. And so Trump realizes this uh, and he has decided to do what he can to, uh, first of all, make people question the, I guess, safety of voting by mail. Uh, He has floated this nonsense talking point about how voting by mail leads to voter fraud. There's absolutely no evidence of that. Uh, But there's also a uh, postmaster general in charge now, Louis DeJoy, who is a Trump loyalist. He has donated uh, upwards of $2 million to Donald Trump and uh, Republicans lately. And so these are all things that people are concerned about. And Trump was very transparent in saying that he does not want to provide any funding to the post office in the next coronavirus stimulus bill uh, because it's going to help Democrats out. He just doesn't want that. So he's being very transparent. And so it is interesting to see corporate Democrats uh, in the media specifically speak out in support of the post office, the importance of the post office. How can this happen? But David Sirota, who is really saltier, the saltiest one in this segment, (laughs) um, and has an incredible memory, shared some screenshots with people on Twitter yesterday. And so I want to share them with you. Here's the tweet. Maybe it's bad that high-profile Dems and pundits have been part of the movement demonizing the post office. And so I want to share some of those uh, images that he embedded with you. Uh, Kevin Drum once published a piece why not finish privatizing the postal service? Well, this was this wasn't like this wasn't ancient history. This Kevin Drum piece came out like yesterday or the day before. Um, it's it's spectacular that that guy still is around. I mean, he's one of the early two thousands kind of blogosphere guys who somehow is still surviving and publishing these terrible liberal takes. Uh, yeah, this is just this was this was this week. This wasn't like ancient history, but the other ones are ancient history and they're great. <laughs> yeah, this one uh, was written by Matthew Iglesias uh, in July of 2012. Tomorrow's going postal. Tomorrow's 5.5 billion dollar default is be- is the beginning of the end for the U.S. Postal Service. It's time to privatize it. Uh, yeah, Iglesias, so- man. Again, another one of these early 2000s liberal blogosphere guys um, who he, he's been one of the most successful ones. I mean, you know, he, Vox has been just spectacularly successful. Um, and it's it's fun to dunk on Iglesias because he's very dumb. But it, it's it's 
I, I want to like remove it from Iglesias himself as the person and just it's it's more about ideology. The reason why we can go back to all kinds of terrible Iglesias takes in the past, like, for example, letting uh, workers in uh, the third world die of a, <laughs> of a like uh, fire in a factory because, it were, you know, these regulations are bad um, is because it's it's the ideology that leads logically towards those bad takes. Right. It's 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 the liberal, the dominant liberal ideology of which Iglesias is one of the high priests of it. That's why it's so easy to just like Google search Iglesias from 2010 or earlier or whatever, like whether it's the Iraq war or worker protections or privatizing the postal service. Like that's why they're always wrong, because their ideology is wrong. Yeah. And also, you know, there was a sobering tweet by the Lincoln Project, which is a group of never Trump Republicans. They're, um, you know, of course, endorsing Biden because they want Trump out. Uh, But they weighed in on this whole postal service issue by um, basically urging private companies like FedEx and UPS uh, to deliver the ballots. Because, you know, privatized companies doing that would make me feel a lot better about the situation. (laughs) And come on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think you're so right about the ideology behind, uh, these takes and, um, you know, it's just, it's incredible how someone like Trump, right. Can, can really reveal like all of their faults and all of their mistakes and how wrong they've been. But they never correct course. Yeah. They still stick to the same nonsense and people still find them credible. Like, that's the thing that blows my mind. I mean, just going back to the Joe uh, Biden video that we were showing, Joe Biden, at this point in the pandemic, as tens of millions of Americans <laughs> have lost their private health insurance because they got fired, laid off, furloughed, he's still saying, like, no, 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 our system's great. All we need to do is provide a public option, which would be underfunded, which would probably be very useless, which we probably wouldn't even try to pass in my administration. Let's keep it real. Like, I mean, he has spent so much time since he won the nomination basically slapping progressives in the face. I mean, AOC gets a a pre-recorded 60-second speech, (laughs) literally, at the DNC. And John Kasich gets his prime speaking spot, and so does Mike Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg, talk about yeah. intersectionality, but um, yeah, uh, it's you know uh, we're talking a lot about Mike this show because it was his birthday. Uh, but one of the things he loved to talk about was that even if he disagreed with like the awful neoliberal Democrats and, and and Tony Blair types from the 1990s, he could respect their kind of strategic hustle and their mm-hmm. uh, ability to um, just have like some sort of backbone and actually like exercise power. And and today's Democrats like and liberals just don't have even that. Like, I mean, they have the same terrible takes, but they don't have the sort of same savvy to exercise power. Um, and, you know, I, I've just been laughing kind of darkly at this whole post office thing because like the right, you know, does the thing where they always do where like it's like they do some insane thing, you know, like try to abolish the mail, you know, Um, and then the liberals just like their only response these days is like, oh, man, that's terrible. Someone should do something about that. It's either that or um, or like begging Jeff Bezos to save them. You know, like people are tweeting at Jeff Bezos, like being like, you could step up and 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 use like your, you know, like your thing to 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 take up the USPS uh, vote by mail thing or like begging like Dan Dresner, who's like one of these like foreign policy magazine liberals. Um, was like tweeting out like, hey, 
hey, FedEx and, and, and UPS, you guys can be heroes and become the most beloved corporations in America if you stepped up and delivered the mail ballots on November 3rd or whatever. And it's like, that's the only thing they can, that's the only thing they can imagine. They, can, they can't imagine right. exercise power. They're like, someone should do something. You know, like Larry Charles tweeted at Gavin Newsom, who was like, Gavin Newsom tweeted out like, uh, hey, the, the USPS should be fully funded. And then Larry Charles tweeted him and he was like, listen, dude, you're the governor of California, one of the most powerful states, like the, the most powerful, biggest state in yep. the union, um, the GDP the size of like France. And, you know, you could do something about it. You have power. Like do something. Don't like just say someone should do something. You guys, you guys have power. Do it. You know, like do something. 100%. You know, like 100%. Mitch McConnell, well, when he's in the minority, throws sand in the gears all over the place. Like, let's do something about it. <laughs> no, I mean, no, that's the thing that drives me nuts, right? So I think social media, Twitter in particular, for average citizens, it, if you're engaging in any type of political rhetoric on Twitter, it gives you like it. It triggers the same parts of your brain that would be triggered if you're actually out on the streets organizing and doing the nitty gritty, like the real work necessary um, to organize and create real change in this country, right? Like when you're just tweeting, um, there have been some studies to show that it triggers the same part of your brain, even though that tweet essentially does nothing. Nothing. And now what we're seeing is like basically like woke Twitter activism by our elected lawmakers who are on vacation right now. Okay. Uh. They're on recess Senate and house of representatives. While I mean, a thousand people are dying a day from this pandemic. Donald Trump is trying to rig the election. There's still no agreement on a stimulus bill. Where are you guys? Get your asses back to Capitol Hill. Feckless losers. That's what we have elected in Congress right now. Yes. Okay. And it's just beyond frustrating. It's beyond frustrating. And yeah, why don't we go ahead and trust our democratic process um, in the hands of privatized companies who have a profit motive? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. That's a great idea. Fantastic. You know, Bhaskar Sunkara had a great piece in, Guardian, in The Guardian this week on, on the U.S. Postal Service. And, and the U.S. Postal Service really is a remarkable organization in so many ways. I mean, it's, it's, it's a model that I think we should be using for a lot more things. You know, things like the news, for example, like is something that would be interesting to have like a, a version of, of a public entity that did, that, that did like the news kind of, but with the same types of protections and independence that the U.S. Postal Service has. And, you know, he was talking about how we should expand it to include you know, postal banking, and you can even uh, imagine like the U.S. Postal Service being able to like deliver food for the elderly and the poor who, who don't have it because it's got this such a vast network and all these workers that are, you know, able to logistically handle all kinds of things. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's horrifying to see the libs, the dumb libs just being like, oh my goodness, uh, someone should do something like that. Or like Kevin Drum writing in Mother Jones magazine, of all places, saying like, nah, you should just privatize it. That's a good idea. It's just, these people are such, they're feckless idiots. I, like, I hate them so much. Definitely. And uh, just to give everyone an update on uh, a piece that David Sirota actually just published about the post office. Um, You know, look, Trump was looking to dismantle the post office well before anyone even really realized it. And uh, he did so with the help of a bipartisan effort in the Senate. So let me give you the details. (laughs) And you guys can read this piece in Jacobin. So um, 
Sirota and Matthew Cunningham Cook write that Donald Trump and Washington lawmakers put the Postal Service under the control of a former Republican National Committee chairman who has also led the Senate GOP's major super PAC. Trump nominee Mike Duncan, also appointed to the USPS's Board of Governors in 2018, um, and uh, was unanimously confirmed by the Senate in December of 2019 to a full seven-year term. Duncan currently chairs the board. Um, so he has a massive amount of influence uh, on the you know, board of the Postal Service. And uh, in 2018, federal disclosure filings during his confirmation indicated that Duncan listed himself as the current chairman of the Senate Leadership Fund, a $100 million Senate-focused Republican super PAC whose 2020 electoral goals could hinge on the vote-by-mail system during the coronavirus pandemic. And of course, uh, just like the current Postmaster General, who is a Trump loyalist, uh, he is invested in competitors to the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, so there is a vested interest to dismantle the Postal Service on top of basically rigging this upcoming general election. It, you know, it's one of those things that you're just like, what do you, you know, it's just everything is awful. I mean, it's again, it's, it, you know, the, the worst people in the world are in power um, and and we don't and we don't have a proper opposition party to do like even the bare minimum you can expect to at least at least make this a bigger issue, at least make this, you know, be, be real demagogues. I don't know, like, get out there. It's just, it's, I mean, it's really look, infuriating. I, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, and I don't really care. I mean, you've, you've heard Schumer and Pelosi speak, right? Yeah. I mean, are, are no. they effective, you no. know, using the bully pulpit? No, no. of course not. Of no. course, that's why they're giving AOC a 60-second speech that's pre-recorded and pre-approved. Because yes. she threatens, you know, the Democratic establishment and their neoliberal ideology. Yep. They, and they know she's effective. an effective speaker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right, Kale. Kale, come any, in here, baby. Um, so I have some bad super news. Questions. I, I really liked your segment today, and I'm now canceled. Oh, no. Ah! <laughs> oh, no. Well, if people are getting canceled for liking my segment, I hope a lot of people get canceled today. Oh, yeah. If being canceled is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> Today's show has been, been fantastic so far uh, between segments and Lee. And we need to save the post office. Like whatever you can do to call uh, elected officials, there's different, you know, some of that kind of like liberal pleading for help from the politicians. But sometimes just getting the phone calls does make yeah. a difference. Yeah, it saved it saved Obamacare. You know, when when they tried to dismantle it, I think that, that the phone banking in that in that specific scenario definitely worked. Um, yeah. So yeah, we got to save the post office. I mean, Bosker talks about it like how it's it's one of the main, if not the main, uh, drivers for upward mobility for like working class black people. You know, forever uh, just into like a union unionized safe job that pays well and has protections. Like it's just we got to save it. Yeah, I have a I have a family member who's a mechanic for the post office um, who comes from a Cuban family uh, and has, you know, definitely does drink the Kool-Aid about socialism and all that anti-socialism anyway. But yeah, it's a great job. It's a it's a fantastic job with benefits. I mean, he knows that, you know, as long as he's able to keep that job, he's going to retire with a great pension. And, um, you know, it's a unionized job. It's just it's so important to save the post office. I just don't, I, I've become so pessimistic because yeah. as Nando mentioned, like who, 
who's the opposition party? Yeah. And, and at this point, I don't think Republicans even care about passing the next round of stimulus because if they know they can rig the election, then like, who cares? Like, right. who cares about providing any economic relief to Americans right now? They don't care about anyone. And unfortunately, yeah. we don't have a proper opposition protecting us. Right. And that's where the so much of reactionary politics, conservative politics, it only gets through because of undemocratic means. And so mm-hmm. it's all the more reason why the left has to be just unrelentingly democratic in their politics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's an issue that the left has right now, that it's not unrelentingly democratic. Um, yeah. And if people who are familiar with, you know, when they're in left organizing spaces, to varying degrees, I don't want to paint a broad picture, but I think the the biggest issue for the American left is not being insufficiently socialist or being, you know, too reformist or too revolutionary. It's insufficiently democratic, actually. Mm. And and I think cancel culture is one of the most kind of, I don't know, just poisonous manifestations of that, of, yeah, taking people down, not through a democratic process, not through holding a vote on something or through open debate and discussion. It's through we have to get rid of our opposition and crush them and uh, or silence them or put pressure on them to be, you know, crushed or silenced. Or sometimes it's not so heavy handed, but yeah, it's, it's these, you know, instead of actually debating and discussing these things, and then it drives a lot of normal people away. Yeah. It, you know, yeah. because working people don't want to waste their time going through arguments with middle-class people over, uh, you know, did you use the right etiquette? Did you, um, yeah. have you bought into the cultural norms prior to joining the fight with us? Yeah. And the whole thing is it's completely backwards. And I'm, I'm kind of preempting a, there's a super chat question from someone asking, do you think that approaching people who have unwoke views in a compassionate, empathetic way is more effective? And is that what cancel culture is? And I think it just, I mean, my thoughts. Yes. Just, it's easy, easy answer. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's you, you build the kind of culture of respect and of compassion through the fight that you're in together, that you recognize people who are imperfect, but have a similar goal. And you come to see them as decent, compassionate, human, fully human people that you want to work with because you have a common interest in working. Together. Yeah, that's the key is the common mm-hmm. interest is that, you know, we ha- we stand more to gain ourselves, you know, by, by doing that, not just you know, not by not putting other people down that we, we do share the same self interest in, in, in coming together. So, yeah. Well, the good news is Kale, someone, someone gave $5 to uncancel you. We say Robert Crandell said five bucks to uncancel Kale, Kale rules. So good, good. Yeah. This is going to take some extended scrubbing. So (laughs) I probably can't uncancel at the moment, but I appreciate it. Um, And if I could just add to that, um, you know, super Jack question and, you know, answer, look, I want to try to come at it from like my own personal experiences to like highlight how effective treating someone with compassion can really be. Because prior to meeting Michael, I can't tell you how many times, um, you know, I would do a segment on TYT on anything, you know, but let's say it touches on the economy or some sort of uh, issue that's happening. And 
maybe my commentary wasn't fully informed, but the response that I would get from leftists would usually be, you're so fucking stupid, it's late stage cap. <laughs> and so like, you preface it with fucking stupid, and yeah. I, I, don't, I don't hear the late stage capitalism part at all, yeah. at all. But Michael was sly, like he was, but like in the, because he's always strategic, right? He was always strategic. And on top of that, he was just genuinely a good person. Yeah. And so I didn't even realize that it was happening. But just by reaching out, becoming a friend and and engaging in these conversations with me in this like non-judgmental way like opened me up to a, a completely different understanding of the world around me. Yeah. And that is what we want to do, right? I mean, I'm sure plenty of people on the left would have canceled me or have canceled me because of my, my views on capitalism in the past. Um, but people are gettable. I, I remember Nando said that to me in private um, last week. I was like, you and Michael, like you guys, why, didn't you, why, were, why weren't you guys dismissive? Um, and, and Nando said you were gettable. <laughs> and so totally. I was like, you know what? You're right. Yeah, you're right. Some people aren't gettable, you know, like I, I don't think Iglesias is gettable. You know, I'm not going to waste my time right. trying to, trying to get Iglesias, but you know, um, but some people are, and it's, you know, you just need some humanity to be able to recognize that. And it can't be a foregone conclusion that someone you haven't met is already ungettable or yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I haven't met Iglesias, but I'm, I'm, I'm foregoing that conclusion. Yeah. Fair. No, but, but right, right. I mean, there's some people that it's very obvious because their entire career is built off of promoting right. certain political ideas or projects or, you know, there's limitations, of course. But I think this is like if the right, you know, this is kind of I'm paraphrasing a, a, a Michael Harrington quote that it's like if, if the left wants to change America because it's it thinks it's like deeply like evil and wrong then like people are not going to join you. They're not going to, yeah. they're not going to trust you. I think like the left has to, the starting point is that most people are good and want a better life and yeah. that it's capitalism that drives us into these horrible, precarious situations. And by and large, I think the liberal attitude on politics is that people are are mean and bad and wrong and, uh, yeah. and stupid. And I think that's kind of overwhelmingly the, thrust of this is that people are stupid and that they don't know what they need. They don't know. They have bad intentions and they make, they vote against their interests. They love that. They love that line. Yeah. Yeah. As if people have good choices to begin with. Like that's, that's the problem that like people, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, you know, and this, you know, obviously, you know, like I'm hoping that, that Biden wins. I'm hoping that that's the world we live in in a couple months. And like that the left can fight against, you know, (laughs) Biden and, you know, potentially sooner than later, Kamala Harris, um, you know, uh, leading the Kamala. Country. Pardon me. You toxic, you know, masculine, sorry, stupid kale. Got to do yeah, it again. Double, double canceled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And by the way, to that point, I mean, like FDR didn't push for the new deal out of like the goodness of his heart, you know, so. Um, you know, as Michael would say, you got to think strategically and really the power is in our hands. Um, we need to fight, but in order to fight, we need allies. We need a broader base. We need to spread our ideas far and wide in a way 
that's appealing, non-judgmental. And, you know, a lot of our emphasis has been on um, capitalism and, and, you know, basically finding a strategic way to dismantle that system. But, you know, a lot of the cancel culture conversation right now does also revolve around um, racism and uh, racial issues. And, you know, Ben Burgess had a really great line. I thought Mm. it was just so powerful in his um, recently published piece in The Jacobin. And this is what he says. He says, real cultural freedom requires a far more economically equal society. Mm. And we all want to live our lives, right? But we're constantly like finding ourselves in this fight for survival. And you can't, you just can't really feel free. Like I, if you really step back and look at what you do on a daily basis just to survive, I mean, do you feel free? No. Do you feel culturally free? No. Um, and so I, I thought that was a powerful line and something that we need to uh, consider. Yeah. And, you know, so much of the liberal discourse around things like white men, you know, is just so counterproductive. Uh, you know, like there it's obviously there's going to be a, a backlash to that. Like if you, a white man was born a white man through no fault of his own. Um, and and then this idea that there should be no cultural exchange um, in any way. Like I saw like some insane piece in Vice this week and it's fun to dunk on the insane pieces, but there, it's 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 internalized in a lot of ways but like it was like the the vegan it's the something along the lines of like the vegan food community has to like check its like appropriation of like non-white foods or some some insane thing like that and it's like what do you guys like you guys want like a fully racially segregated society like you guys really want like what the nazis wanted in that sense um and it's like cultural exchange is the most beautiful thing you can imagine um few like few melding different things from different cultures the most beautiful thing you can imagine i mean you know mike for example loved black culture he just did you know he loved hip-hop he loved reggae he got found inspiration from black liberation struggles and things like that you know like that's not appropriation that's not bad that's a good thing that is an absolute good thing and it makes him a more full better person um but like the the sort of liberal line has become you know like that's actually really bad you can't do that well I really think that that is, I don't think it's an accident. I mean, this is meant to create factions on the left, and it has, you know? It's a way to disempower us, and we're experiencing that right now. We're too busy fighting each other instead of celebrating one another and finding ways to, uh, you know, consolidate as a group to fight aggressively for the things that we know we desperately need. Um, I, I just, yeah. We need to know our enemies, right? Like know your enemies. I don't I don't think that we really have fully identified and accepted who the real enemies are. And uh, the people who prey on um, progressive candidates who are primarying disgusting corporatist Democrats, um, you know, they, they use cancel culture as a weapon. Uh, to destroy them. I mean, that's exactly what happened with Alex Morse. They're trying yeah. to do it with Shahid Buttar. Uh, I'm with seeing Kale it. Brooks. I mean, I definitely experienced it. Kale Brooks, you know, yeah. canceled twice in like <laughs> the same like 15 minutes. Jeez. I'm still standing. I'm still yeah. here. Well, people, you know, people don't realize Kale Brooks' mother's from Argentina, so Kale Brooks is actually Latinx. Mm. What the fuck, dude? Now you know, they're canceled. Yeah, it's Latinx. <laughs> But okay, on a more serious note, though, like this is and this isn't a I don't you know, just objectively, the American left is primarily a middle class formation. And yes. for better or worse, 
sometimes it's to our benefit to have a ton of great designers on our team. But at the same time, like, you know, what that means is that most people who are in this fight, I'm not saying all, but I would say an outsized portion, maybe more than historically has been the case, uh, are doing this for moral reasons, that it's a moral commitment to wanting justice. And that's totally legitimate, of course. Like, you know, I'm a video producer, like, out of magazine. I'm middle class. Like, I mostly have a moral commitment to socialism. But the thing is, is that when all you have is the moral case, like you have a greater chance of spiraling out into things like cancel culture or these, yeah. these like the kind of the most regressive versions of moralism of, uh, of taking people down because they weren't morally correct enough or morally pure enough or whatever. Not everyone, but obviously that's kind of the, the worst end of the stick with that. But like historically the left, like the, the thing, the glue that keeps people together is the material uh, needs that you say like, we're in this fight because we have a material stake in this. Yeah. And so I think that's gonna be the challenge for the left is figuring out how to you know, bring our politics to people who by and large have the material stake in the project that we're advocating for. Well, I mean, that's, well, that's, you know, you're right. I mean, uh, for, I mean, I, I did not grow up working class, you know, at a, I have a moral commitment to socialism. I don't have, you know, I've never, I've never wanted for anything in my life. Um, but I think what you're talking about, Kale, um, you know, again, I think Bernie was the most effective version of that. I mean, he did, he did make more inroads with uh, with the working class than any other leftist has in decades. And, you know, whether we have our strategic um, quibbles with him or his decision to endorse Biden or all that stuff, you know, at the end of the day, he did put together a coalition of working class people that were, that we haven't seen in decades. Um, which is why I think, like, the left impulse to be like, you know, Bernie abandoned us or, you know, whatever, like, that's, that's just dumb we have to build on that we have to re-engage with that and that sort of simple bread and butter message that bernie had his ruthless kind of discipline in 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 just talking about the class war and the and medicare for all and the green like you know what i mean like just the three big things like never getting into any of the culture war stuff because that is just a massive turnoff to people. It just is. It just is. It's never going to work. Ever, 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 ever. So, you know, I think we have to build on that, not just like be like, no, yeah, Bernie, he did bullshit. You know, shut up. And, and, my, and my last point on this is just that as when you're on the left, as an organizer, you have to figure out how to work with people where they're at. And you need to figure out yeah. how to build those coalitions, make those connections, bring them over to your side. And so, you know, like you were saying Anna, a moment ago, like if someone starts off with like, listen here, fuckface, if you haven't read Ernst Mendel's like capitalism, then you know, so, like yeah. that's it's not going to work. Right. Uh, like, look, sounds like a trot, you know, like it's like, shut up, man. Like, you know, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. We're trying to figure out how to form political projects that lead to certain outcomes. And so you have to work with where people are at. And you don't ever give up the the certain political and social rights that are part of socialism. It necessarily means, like, you know, in addition to bread and butter issues, it also means certain political rights in society, that we treat people fully human, right? But we're not in socialism just yet, and you have to bring people there. It's a process of convincing someone of an argument, not telling them they're wrong and, like, shut the fuck up. Either you're with me or you're with the system that is hegemonic and is not going away anytime soon, like 
you have to build up your your side of the you have to fight for your argument and you have to pull people to your side in this fight and it's going to be hard and it's going to take a while but bernie also like took us light years ahead than where we were 10 years ago so I don't know. I just love Bernie. You want to bring, you want to, you want to invite people to your party and and hope they're going to show up because you got chips and salsa and some nice cocktails, yeah, right? You're, you're good, people you're are going to come to your party if you have like cameras set up to catch them, you know, fucking up, <laughs> so you can fucking put them in on the bathroom. blast on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. No, you should encourage that. You should encourage like there's fucking in the bathroom going on at all my parties. It's super fun. No one's going <laughs> to no tell on you. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah. well I, this technically was the super chat portion of the of the show, but um, I like it. Maybe, maybe that's a good place to end, actually. All right. All right, everyone, um, you know, check out all the other video series on the Jacobin YouTube channel. It's excellent. I absolutely yes. love it. And um, our good friend and frequent uh, Jacobin contributor, Ben Burgess, has his own show. And yes. um, I tweeted the link to it if you'd like to watch. Um, it airs after this show. Um, and I'll be on it today, but that part doesn't Hell matter. Yeah. It's just a fantastic show. No, it does show, matter. So make sure you check it out. It does <laughs> matter. And I'll out. be on in September at some point. So I'm very excited about that. Nice. Ben Burgess is great. I love it. All right. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Have an awesome weekend, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.